Section 24, More Crusades, Part 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. The dirt, crowding, and smells in the first place are characteristic of a half a dozen others we visited. We penetrate to garrets and descend into cellars. The rear houses are particularly dreadful. Everywhere there is decaying garbage laying about, and the dead cats and rats are evidence that there are mighty hunters among the gammons of the fourth ward. We find a number ill from the grip and consequent maladies. None of the sufferers will entertain the thought of seeking a hospital. One probably voices the opinion of the majority when he declares that they'll wash you to death there. For these people, a bath possesses more terror than the gallows or the grave. In one room, with a wee window, lies a woman dying of consumption, wasted, wan, and wretched, lying on rags and swarming with vermin. Her little son, a boy of eight years, nestles beside her. His cheeks are scarlet, his eyes feverishly bright, and he has a hard cough. "'It's the chills, Mum,' says the little chap. Six beds stand close together in another room. One is empty. Three days ago a woman died there, and the body has just been taken away. It hasn't disturbed the rest of the inmates to have death present there. A woman is lying on the wrecks of a bedstead, slats and posts sticking out in every direction from the rags on which she reposes.' It broke under me in the night, she explains. A woman is sick and wants Liz to say a prayer. We kneel on the filthy floor. Soon all my faculties are absorbed in speculating which will arrive first, the Amen or the B-flat, which is wending its way toward me. This time the bug does not get there and I enjoy grinding him under the sole of my slum shoe when the prayer is ended. In another room we find what looks like a corpse. It is a woman in an opium stupor. Drunken men are brawling around her. Returning to our tenement, Em and Liz meet us, and we return to our experience. The minor details vary slightly, but the story is the same piteous tale of woe everywhere and crime abounding, conditions which only change to a prison, a plunge in the river, or the potter's field. The dark continent can show no lower depth of degradation than that sounded by the dwellers of the dark alleys in Cherry Hill. There isn't a vice missing in that quarter. Every sin in the Decalogue flourishes in that feeder of penitentiaries and prisons. And even as its moral foulness permeates and poisons the veins of our social life, so the malarial filth with which the locality reeks must sooner or later spread disease and death. An awful picture, truly, but one which is to me irradiated with the love-light which shone in the eyes of M's serious, sweet, saint-like face. Here is my second. It was written by a journalist who had just witnessed the scene in Whitechapel. He writes, 
I had just passed Mr. Barnett's church when I was stopped by a small crowd at a street corner. There were about thirty or forty men, women, and children standing loosely together. Some others were lounging on the opposite side of the street round the door of a public house. In the center of the crowd was a plain-looking little woman in Salvation Army uniform, with her eyes closed, praying the dear Lord that he would bless these dear people and save them, save them now. Moved by curiosity, I pressed through the outer fringe of the crowd, and in doing so I noticed a woman of another kind, also invoking heaven, but in an altogether different fashion. Two dirty tramp-like men were listening to the prayer, standing the while smoking their short cutty pipes. For some reason or other, they had offended the woman, and she was giving them a piece of her mind. They stood stolidly silent while she went at them like a fiend. She had been good-looking once, but was now horribly bloated with drink and excited by passion. I heard both voices at the same time. What a contrast! The prayer was over now, and a pleading, earnest address was being delivered. "'You are wrong,' said the voice in the center. "'You know you are. All this misery and poverty is a proof of it. You are prodigals. You have got away from your father's house, and you are rebelling against him every day. Can you wonder that there is so much hunger and oppression and wretchedness allowed to come upon you? In the midst of it all your father loves you. He wants you to return to him, to turn your backs upon your sins. Abandon your evil doings. Give up the drink and the service of the devil. He has given his son Jesus Christ to die for you. He wants to save you. Come to his feet. He is waiting. His arms are open. I know the devil has got fast hold of you, but Jesus will give you grace to conquer him. He will help you to master your wicked habits and your love of drink. But come to him now. God is love. He loves me. He loves you. He loves us all. He wants to save us all. Clear and strong the voice, eloquent with the fervor of intense feeling, rang through the little crowd, past which streamed the ever-flowing tide of East End life. And at the same time that I heard this pure and passionate invocation to love God and be true to man, I heard a voice on the outskirts, and it said this, You swine! I'll knock the vittles out of you. None of your impudence to me, your eyes. What do you mean by telling me that? You know what you had done. Now you're going to the Salvation Army. I'll let them know you, you dirty rascal. The man shifted his pipe. What's the matter? Matter, screamed the Virgo hoarsely. Your life. Don't you know what's the matter? I'll matter you, ya hound. By God, I will as sure as I'm alive. Matter, you know what's the matter. And so she went on, the man standing silently smoking until at last she took herself off, her mouth full of oaths and cursing, to the public house. It seemed as though the presence and the spirit of the words of the officer, who still went on with the message of mercy, had some strange effect upon them, 
which made these poor wretches impervious to the taunting, bitter sarcasms of this brazen, blatant virago. God is love. Was it not then the accent of God's voice that sounded there above the din of the street and the swearing of the slums? Yea, verily, and that voice ceases not, and will not cease, so long as the slum sisters fight under the banner of the Salvation Army. To form an idea of the immense amount of good, temporal and spiritual, which the slum sister is doing, you need to follow them into the kennels where they live, preaching the gospel with the mop and the scrubbing brush, and driving out the devil with soap and water. In one of our slum posts, where the officers' rooms were on the ground floor, about fourteen other families lived in the same house. One little water closet in the backyard had to do service for the whole place. As for the dirt, one officer writes, it is impossible to scrub the homes. Some of them are in such a filthy condition. When they have a fire, the ashes are left to accumulate for days. The table is very seldom, if ever, properly cleaned. Dirty cups and saucers lie about it, together with bits of bread, and if they have bloaters, the bones and heads are left on the table. Sometimes there are pieces of onions mixed up with the rest. The floors are in a very much worse condition than the street pavements, and when they are supposed to clean them, they do it with about a pint of dirty water. When they wash, which is rarely, for washing to them seems an unnecessary work, they do it in a quart or two of water, and sometimes boil the things in some old saucepan in which they cook their food. They do this simply because they have no larger vessel to wash in. The vermin fall off the walls and ceiling on you while you're standing in the rooms. Some of the walls are covered with marks where they have killed them. Many people in the summer sit on the doorsteps all night, the reason for this being that their rooms are so close from the heat and so unendurable from the vermin that they prefer staying out in the cool night air. But as they cannot stay anywhere long without drinking, they send for beer from the neighboring public. Alas, never far away and pass it from one doorway to another, the result being singing, shouting, and fighting up till three and four o'clock in the morning. I could fill volumes with stories of the war against vermin, which is part of this campaign in the slums, but the subject is too revolting to those who are often indifferent to the agonies their fellow creatures suffer, so long as their sensitive ears are not shocked by the mention of so painful a subject. Here, for instance, is a sample of the kind of region in which the slum sisters spend themselves. In an apparently respectable street near Oxford Street, the officers were visiting one day when they saw a very dark staircase leading into a cellar, and thinking it possible that someone might be there, they attempted to go down, and yet the staircase was so dark they thought it impossible for anyone to be there. However, they tried again and groped their way along in the dark for some time, until at last they found the door and entered the room. At first they could not discern anything because of the darkness, 
but after they got used to it they saw a filthy room. There was no fire in the grate, but the fireplace was heaped up with ashes, an accumulation of several weeks at least. At one end of the room there was an old sack of rags and bones, partly emptied upon the floor, from which there came a most unpleasant odor. At the other end lay an old man, very ill. The apology for a bed on which he lay was filthy, and had neither sheets nor blankets. His covering consisted of old rags. His poor wife, who attended on him, appeared to be a stranger to soap and water. These slum sisters nursed the old people, and on one occasion undertook to do their washing, and they brought it home to their copper for this purpose. But it was so infested with vermin that they did not know how to wash it. Their landlady, who happened to see them, forbade them ever to bring such stuff there any more. The old man, when well enough, worked at his trade, which was tailoring. They had two shillings and sixpence per week from the parish. Here is a report from the headquarters of our slum brigade as to the work which the slum sisters have done. It is almost four years since the slum work started in London. The principal work done by our first officers was that of visiting the sick, cleansing the homes of the slummers, and of feeding the hungry. The following are a few of the cases of those who have gained temporarily as well as spiritually through our work. Mrs. W. of Hagerston Slum, heavy drinker, wrecked home, husband a drunkard, placed dirty and filthy, terribly poor, saved now over two years, home A1, plenty of employment at cane chair bottoming, husband now saved also. Mrs. R., Drury Lane Slum, husband and wife, drunkards, husband very lazy, only worked when starved into it. We found them both out of work, home furnitureless, in debt. She got saved, and our lasses prayed for him to get work. He did so and went to it. He fell out again a few weeks after and beat his wife. She sought employment at charring and office cleaning got it, and has been regularly at work since. He too got work. He is now a teetotaler. The home is very comfortable now, and they are putting money in the bank. A.M. in the Dials was a great drunkard, thriftless, did not go to the trouble of seeking work, was in a slum meeting, heard the captain speak on Seek First the Kingdom of God, called out and said, Do you mean that if I ask God for work he will give it me? Of course, she said, yes. He was converted that night, found work, and is now employed in the guest works, Old Kent Road. Jimmy is a soldier in the borrow slum, was starving when he got converted through being out of work. Through joining the army he was turned out of his home. He found work, and now owns a coffee stall in Billingsgate Market and is doing well. Sergeant R. of Marylebone Slum Used to drink, lived in a wretched place in the famous Charles Street, had work at two places, at one of which he got five shillings a week, and the other ten shillings, when he got saved. This was starvation wages, on which to keep himself 
his wife and four children. At the ten shillings a week work, he had to deliver drink for a spirit merchant. Feeling condemned over it, he gave it up and was out of work for weeks. The brokers were put in, but the Lord rescued him just in time. The five shillings a week employer took him afterwards at eighteen shillings, and he is now earning twenty-two shillings, and has left the ground-floor slum tenement for a better house. H. Nine Elm Slum was saved on Easter Monday, out of work several weeks before, is a laborer, seems very earnest, in terrible distress. We allow his wife two shillings sixpence a week for cleaning the hall to help them. In addition to that, she gets another two shillings sixpence for nursing, and on that, husband, wife, and a couple of children pay the rent of two shillings a week and drag out an existence. I have tried to get work for this man, but have failed. T. of Rotherhithe Slum was a great drunkard, is a carpenter, saved about nine months ago, but having to work in a public house on a Sunday, he gave it up. He has not been able to get another job, and has nothing but what we have given him for making seats. M.O.Y., now a soldier of the Marylebone slum post, was a wild young slummer when we opened in the borough. Could be generally seen in the streets, wretchedly clad, her sleeves turned up, idle, only worked occasionally. Got saved two years ago, had terrible persecution in her home. We got her a situation where she has been for nearly eighteen months and is now a good servant. Lodging House Frank, at twenty-one, came into the possession of seven hundred fifty pounds, but through drink and gambling lost it all in six or eight months, and for over seven years he has tramped about from Portsmouth through the south of England and south Wales from one lodging house to another, often starving, drinking when he could get any money, thriftless, idle, no heart for work. We found him in a lodging house six months ago, living with a fallen girl. Got them both saved and married. Five weeks after, he got work as a carpenter at thirty shillings a week. He has a home of his own now, and promises well to make an officer." The officer who furnishes the above reports goes on to say, I can't call the wretched dwelling home to which drink had brought brother and sister X. From a life of luxury they drifted down by degrees to one room in a slum tenement, surrounded by drunkards and the vilest characters. Their lovely half-starved children were compelled to listen to the foulest language, and hear fighting and quarreling, and alas, alas, not only to hear it in the adjoining rooms, but witness it within their own. For over two years they have been delivered from the power of the cursed drink. The old rookery is gone, and now they have a comfortably furnished home. Their children give evidence of being truly converted, and have a lively gratitude for their father's salvation." One boy of eight said last Christmas Day, I remember when we had only dry bread for Christmas, but today we had a goose and two plum puddings. Brother X was dismissed in disgrace from his situation as commercial traveler before his conversion. 
Today he is chief man, next to his employer in a large business house. He says, I am perfectly satisfied that very few of the lowest strata of society are unwilling to work if they could get it. The wretched hand-to-mouth existence many of them have to live disheartens them and makes life with them either a feast or a famine and drives those who have brains enough to crime. The results of our work in the slums may be put down as, first, a marked improvement in the cleanliness of the homes and children, disappearance of vermin, and a considerable lessening of drunkenness. Second, a greater respect for true religion, and especially that of the Salvation Army. Third, a much larger amount of work is being done now than before our going there. Fourth, the rescue of many fallen girls. Fifth, the shelter work seems to us a development of the slum work. In connection with our scheme, we propose to immediately increase the number of these slum sisters, and to add to their usefulness by directly connecting their operations with the colony, enabling them thereby to help the poor people to conditions of life more favorable to health, morals, and religion. This would be accomplished by getting some of them employment in the city, which must necessarily result in better homes and surroundings, or in the opening up for others of a straight course from the slums to the farm colony. End of section 24. Recording by Tom Hirsch.